Hello and welcome to the first episode of Self Sort, a podcast about how people organize things with me, your host, Shaq Hackney. This is going to be an experiment, uh, kind of informal. I've got notes printed out at a giant font uh, as I get old. And so because this is the very first episode of Self Sort, I have a very special guest with me today. It's also me. <laughs> so I'm gonna sort of interview myself and give a rundown of some of the topics I want to cover in this podcast, uh, news, uh, exciting tidbits, and all sorts of other stuff. All right, so Shaq, why don't we start off with you telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm Shaq. My pronouns are they, he. Uh, I'm a librarian, an anarchist, a writer, and a general information nerd. I'm currently in the fifth year of my PhD in library and information science at the School of Computing and Information at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, I'm interested in information standardization and regulation, the mapping of non-physical space, and the intersection of linguistic philosophy and technology. Um, I'm also trans and non-binary, queer, Cancer Sun, Sagittarius Moon, Leo Rising. Awesome. A lot of water versus fire energy in there. Yes, that's correct. Uh, so tell me about how the idea for this podcast got started, Shaq, and what we're hoping to do with it here. Well, uh, possibly it's obvious from my background that I am an information person. I like to know about what people know and how they know it. Um, so I'm, I'm fascinated with how people organize their brains, uh, how they attempt to share whatever knowledge they glean from that organization process uh, with others and what gets lost in translation in that act, um, in necessarily taking something out of your head and trying to put it into somebody else's head. And on top of that, I know a bunch of really cool people who do really exciting and fascinating and weird work and art in areas that I really don't know much about, except that my information brain says, ah, I bet they have a really interesting way of organizing things in that world. Um, and so I want to poke a little bit more into that. Talk to people, uh, things like mushroom taxonomy. Um, I'm a, a bit of a, a amateur mycologist myself. I like going out and foraging for mushrooms, but I'm aware there's a whole world of which mushrooms are related to which ones that is constantly shifting and changing. And there's a lot of uh, debate within that uh, realm of the sciences about nomenclature and uh, how life even works for fungi. Um, it sort of is disrupting that animal plant binary that we tend to think about as the main sources of life on Earth. Um, on top of that, uh, I know a lot of people who do uh, old media archiving, whether like physical uh, tape 
archiving, turning digital, born digital archiving, or uh, preservation of software. Um, and I know that uh, based on my own work that that is getting increasingly complicated as well as born digital files are uh, created, strewn about the internet or cyberspace more generally, uh, and then um, perhaps not so easy to find the next time you need them. Um, so I want to talk about that some, and then uh, just being a freelancer or self-employed in this day and age requires a lot of self-determination, a lot of ability to organize yourself, and there's so much pressure um, from the grind culture, uh, as they call it, about putting yourself out there and making sure you've got all of the elements lined up, one, two, three, four, five. Um, been doing that a lot this week, getting ready for this podcast. I got, you know, make sure I got a, the social medias, got everything linked to everything else, uh, everything timed out correctly on the calendar, um, so on and so forth. So I want to hear about uh, how individuals conquer that problem and both within their personal lives uh, and professional lives in whatever manifestations that takes. Um, in terms of, I mentioned uh, my astrology, like astrology is a fascinating system of organizing the stars, organizing people and organizing the way that we think about our relationships to one another. Would love to talk about that sometime. Uh, it just seems like, in general, we have so many tools being offered up to us to help us organize our lives, but very rarely does it seem that any works perfectly. Um, and I want to know about that gap between uh, trying to know and being unable to know, uh, and how people try to cross it, what tools they use, and what problems they encounter. Um, and then... There's the fact that all of our brains are wired differently. Um, I'm no neuroscientist, though I did live with one in college for a while. Uh, she did a lot of mushrooms, uh, but the rising awareness and conversations around neurodivergence were also a big influence on wanting to create this podcast. I think there's a lot of culture, as I mentioned, the grind culture around planning and organizing that can be very normative, um, both stylistically and in terms of like mental mapping as uh which is a term we can talk about more um and i wanted to make space for exploring other ways of thinking about information organization um because everyone is the expert of their own mind um and you know, you can come and say this is the perfect planner that's going to get you through the week but if your mind doesn't function in that system, then it's not going to do you any good. Um, and you know best, in my opinion. Um, yeah, so that's sort of what I am aiming at here. Um, big picture stuff, as well as like the nitty gritty stuff, too. We are going to talk about my notebooks tonight. Friends, lovers, my notebooks. Um, I'm real picky about them. <laughs> uh, spoiler alert. Uh, yeah, so that's where uh, I'm at for now. And 
Well, thank you so much for that thorough introduction to our uh, work here. I wanted to ask you, what does the name self-sort mean? And what will the typical episode of self-sort cover? Wow, so perfect. What a segue uh, into what I was already planning to say. Um, so self-sort, as it's spelled in the title of the podcast, which is self.sort, open closed parentheses, is a piece of Python code. Um, but the concept of the self-sort is present in pretty much all types of coding from basic to Excel spreadsheets. And I definitely want to do an episode all about Excel, uh, as well as all across the scientific world. Uh, what a self-sort does is, is take everything in a certain list, um, which you've already determined at some other time, and put it in an order. Pretty self-explanatory. Um, the order is usually based on sequ sequential numbering, but can easily get really complicated um, by not doing it that way or adding layers on top of it, um, using features, scripts, layered on top of one another. Sort of the same way that uh, sorting your bookshelf can become more difficult the more uh, factors you add into it. Like, well, I'm going to sort it, you know, alphabetically by author's last name and then by date published and then genre and so on and so forth. And so you end up with these stacking, um, nesting sort operations happening on your own bookshelf. So that's a form of self-sort. Um, and it's something, just the idea of sorting out the self is something that we do every day. It's a general reference to the idea of ordering things and, and how the apparent simplicity of trying to do that can quickly get out of hand. Yeah, so it's about this idea of organizing for yourself, for your own brain, organizing the self for uh, its existence in the world and sorting things out. I think that it's a code layout is a cute cherry on top for the information science uh, visual there at the end. But there's also uh, another meaning to the phrase self-sort, um, which is just as important to what I want to cover in this show. So in 2014, um, an opinion piece titled The Self-Sort was published uh, by New York Times journalist Charles M. Blow, uh, and he talks about this other meaning of the self-sort and the impact that it is having on the lived world around us. Um, I will link that article in the show notes after uh, this episode is released, and uh, you should check out, uh, he has a book, uh, Charles Blow, coming out shortly that looks really interesting. Um, so he writes in this article, we are facing another worsening kind of segregation, one not codified, but cultural. We are self-sorting, not only along racial lines, but also along educational and income ones, particularly in our big cities. So that's the other idea of the self-sort, um, this idea that we as human beings uh, want to sort ourselves uh, into groups and there are implications for that because we are not uh, a pile of books at the library. We are 
are beings. Um, the numbers bear this out uh, since the 1940s and 50s um, and in 1970s with uh, things like redlining and blockbustering of black neighborhoods to prevent black families from getting home loans or being able to move into uh, higher class, whiter areas, uh, especially in urban areas and uh, that then results in these homogenized communities that uh, over the course of years, of generations, we come to think of as normal. It seems pretty self-explanatory, like goes with like, but part of the problem is when you're dealing with human beings in particular, counts as being alike is subjective and shaped really dramatically by larger societal and infrastructural issues such as when it comes to racial segregation, as I said, uh, redlining. And now uh, we hear a lot of talk about this in terms of social media bubbles, um, in terms of who you interact with online, um, what news you're hearing from them, uh, what news you're hearing from what other sources in the world, and what then your perception of the opinion of the world might be based on uh, who you might be talking to. And so I want to think about the ways that the spaces that we make physically and online support that type of self-sorting that can become extremely dangerous as it does with segregation, white nationalism and racism, as we're seeing in the United States and all over the world today. Um, but I do want to emphasize there's a huge value in people with similar histories and experiences grouping together for solidarity, comfort, tradition, food, love, just because they want to. I'm not saying that people shouldn't hang out with the people they want to hang out with. There's so much power in black people working to celebrate and uplift black culture. Um, but the problem comes when the idea is that the differences between us are uh, permanently codifiable, infallible, and real from an objective sense. Um, and that causes uh, things to happen where we don't even realize we're doing this self-sort anymore. Uh, Charles Blow talks about this uh, in the article. After a few generations of uh, intentional redlining of these neighborhoods, it no longer becomes necessary to do that because the groups within those neighborhoods say, OK, well, then if this is our space, we'll take this space and make it ours. Um, we don't there's no incentive to cross those lines. And so the homogenization continues. Yeah, so that's what the other part of this podcast is about. Uh, I hope to push back some against this idea that any sort of sorting is natural um, or more authentic in some way than any other. Um, and, you know, while we all need to organize in order to perceive and function in the world, you know, we cannot be constantly consumed by chaos uh, as much as some of us may wish these days, that while we all need to organize in order to perceive and function in the world, we're all necessarily navigating the trauma of generations of white supremacist culture that wants this homogenization 
um, of humanity so badly, so violently. Um, and, you know, I'm a white person. I have a lot to reckon with uh, there. And information is the way that I reckon with things. So I'm hoping by uh, starting these conversations and continuing to have them uh, push back on that narrative. Yeah. So awesome. I love it. Good. I hope you should. <laughs> Before we get to the news, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself, Shaq, and your academic work? Absolutely. I would be thrilled to. Uh, every PhD student's favorite question, right? Uh, <laughs> no, but really, I like to talk about my work. Um, the boring version uh, is that I study character encoding standards for digital text from an infrastructural STS and information governance perspective. That's the fancy academia version. The exciting version is I study emojis. Yeah, one of those things sounds like way more exciting than the other one. Um, but they're deeply entwined and I love them both. So my dissertation looks at the history of the Unicode standard and its governing consortium. Um, today, most people know Unicode as that thing that does emojis or being vaguely related to your keyboard on your phone. But the Unicode standard is a 30-year-old piece of information architecture that is built on 30 or more ye additional years of research about character encoding, communication, and infrastructure, with parts of Unicode being traceable directly back to systems created for Morse code operators. So uh, in the 19th century, when uh, folks were figuring out how to send an electrical pulse down a line and turn that from on off into intelligible human communication, standards were set to say, you know, one, a dot means this and a dash means this and a pause means that. And that continues, it continues directly into Unicode, uh, all of the text that we type and emojis specifically today. So what I'm interested in specifically then is how this infrastructure shapes what we what can and cannot be text in digital space. Um, a lot of assumptions were made way back in the day about who would be using these standards. People working on Morse code could have never conceived um, of the way text is moved around today. Although when the first Morse code lines were opened up in the United States, it was very much a chat line kind of thing. There was a whole uh, subculture of people who learned Morse code, uh, hung out on the Morse code lines and chit chatted together. And I would love to talk about that more sometime. So like the idea of this socialization is still happening from the very beginning, but it's the scope um, and the definition of what text is that has these implications for where we are now with all of these emojis sprouting up. Um, it basically means that whatever nuance concepts of language that we have as humans are able to have is kind of secondary to the way that a computer understands text because a computer 
is a machine that has to do things in a certain order. And if it messes up, then it is messed up and it doesn't work. So there has to be a strict black and white answer to everything that's uh, happening on the computer. And as we all know, language can be vague and beautiful in that way. So that's where the emojis come in, right? Um, just in case you're not, you don't know, or you're not clear. Uh, emojis are those little picture characters that pop up as an option on your smartphone keyboard. The one with the yellow smileys and all the world flags and types of food and stuff like that. Um, you and I, as literate people, um, can look at that smiley and say, that smiley face is different in a meaningful way from a word or a letter of the alphabet. Um, we perceive the smiley as an image, which has a nuanced semantic meaning to it um, that goes somewhat beyond the idea of what the text might mean. If you say, smile, that inherently has a different meaning than seeing this tiny little picture of a smiling face. So as compared to the computer, we see an emoji as an image. We see a picture from which we can derive symbolic meaning, um, whether that meaning has been already been culturally assigned or becomes culturally assigned later, uh, point directly to the evolution of the uh, eggplant emoji, uh, which hopefully uh, you all know by now means penis. So use with caution. Um, and there will be a uh, beaver emoji rolling out uh, this next month, November, rolling out created by a group of uh, Canadian lesbians, librarians. Yeah, which I think is a really interesting uh, tangential turn because the eggplant emoji was, of course, never intended to be penis. Um, but it was, and people who uh, have no use for such an emoji have stepped in and said, like, well, we want something metaphorical to represent our business. And so that's becoming encoded in Unicode with the intended meaning of, oh, beaver is also slang for a vagina. So, but you can't convey that to the computer. You can put that in the Unicode standard, although the way that the rules operate of the standard don't generally allow for a lot of meaning to be encoded, but we're seeing that change. And that's that change is what I'm interested in because they're taking on so much more semantic weight um, within that space. And the question really becomes, how do you organize something with no definite limit? Because we can make, we as people can make symbols out of anything. Uh, it's like one of our main things that we're real good at. Um, and so I don't think we should stop, but it presents this question of how do you deal with that? Um, and I'll just quote uh, the Unicode technical report number 17 from 2008, which reads, because Unicode is intended to be the universal encoding, any, any abstract character that could 
ever be encoded is potentially a member of the set to be encoded, whether that character is currently known or not. That is huge. That's huge. Uh, it's basically saying any character for any language that could, any symbol that could ever possibly exist already counts as part of Unicode. We promise we'll take that on. Um, which is naturally impossible, right? Ambitious, you know, appreciated, especially uh, since digital text is the main way a lot of us communicate these days, um, but a physically impossible task and one that um, butts heads with what uh, the concept of text to a computer or text to a person is. Yeah, so that's what I research. Um, I am always interested in fun stories about emojis. Uh, if you find a fun article or you're like, my friend uses this one emoji in this really weird way, I love to hear about it um, because it's it really is a type of uh, slang, a language that it is in the process of developing right before our eyes with this really interesting uh, computer mediation uh, between it and the people who use it. So that will be all on my research for now. Um, I imagine you'll be hearing more about it as the podcast progresses. Uh, I'm hoping actually to defend uh, my dissertation in the spring. Um, so I am in the midst of writing and then eventually I want to turn that into a book, uh, which hopefully Jens will read. Please. What's next? Let's start on the news. Earlier this month, at the beginning of this month, uh, researchers at the Harvard Medical School at the Institute of Science and Technology in Austria uh, published their research about discovering a key control mechanism that cells use to self-organize in early embryonic development. As a cell begins, an embryo begins to divide into cells to become a being, a creature of some type. Uh, those cells express unique combinations of adhesion molecules. Um, it's sort of like how eventually, even if you mix uh, oil and vinegar up really hard, it will separate out. They uh, separate into their adhesion codes. But so far, there had been very little evidence of this plays a role in patterning um, the development of said embryo. So uh, Sean Magison, Tony Sai, uh, co-leaders of this uh, research initiative developed a method to measure the force by which these cells adhere to one another. Um, and I'm, this is so cute. <laughs> so they basically just get two tiny little like Q-tips, I don't know, sticks with cells on each end they push them together and then they real slowly pull them apart and see how much force that takes. Um, they have, you know, precisely controlled suction so they can measure exactly how much force is being used and uh, to pull the two cells apart. They can measure that, track it. Um, 
And by analyzing three different cells at once, so in a triangle, you can establish preference. Uh, if, you know, cells A and B are more likely to, to sort themselves together than cells B and C. Um, these experiments have revealed that cells of a similar type strongly and preferentially adhere to one another and that there are three genes uh, in dash cadhern, cadhern 11 and proto cadhern 19, all great usernames, I'm sure, um, emerged as essential for normal patterning. So as best I can understand, none of this was done on human cells. I believe they were working with zebra turkey fish, um, which is a invasive species that uh, is being needs to be removed from some of our oceans. So, but as I understand it, it means that uh, there are in fact three genes that are associated with performing this type of self-sort in the very, very, very earliest days of cell fertilization, uh, which is really cool. I freely admit that I'm not a chemist or a microbiologist or an expert on these things at all. I'm interpreting it as best I can from a layman's perspective. But if you are an expert on this kind of thing, please reach out. I would love to hear more about it. <laughs> So the second news point for tonight is really excited about this one, guys. <laughs> My favorite type of notebook got undiscontinued. <laughs> uh, I posted about this on Instagram. I'm really, last really week picky of... about the notebooks that I use. Um, I like moleskin notebooks a lot. There are, you know, lots of. Uh, notebooks in that very moleskin style, but I tend to stick with the brand uh, just because it's consistent and I know it. Uh, this is not an endorsement, though please call me. I will shill for you, moleskin. Um, so the classic notebook, Black Pocket, three and a half by five inches, soft cover squared, uh, was the notebook that had been discontinued, uh, my favorite. And I told you, it was very specific. Uh, I will post a link in the show notes. And uh, yeah, so this is my everyday, everywhere kind of notebook. It is conveniently pocket-sized. Um, and I love the squared paper. The moleskin squared paper is the best. It's just the right size of graph. It's like a little smaller than some of the other ones. Um, some of the other types of graph paper, narrow lined graph paper. Mm, so good. Uh, despite there being more lines on the page than like a regular lined piece of paper, it feels more free and open because I guess I know I'm going to cross the lines at some point anyway. Um, I carry this around with me pretty much everywhere. Uh, Less so these days, as I go fewer places these days. Um, but it's my general note-taking, uh, observation, reminder, meetings, notebook. And yeah, it got discontinued a couple years ago. Um, just this like very specific ver variant, <laughs> the soft squared uh, variant. And I was 
pretty devastated about it because this has been my been my uh, bread and butter for gosh almost six years now oh man um I go through two or three a year uh so when I realized they weren't selling them anymore I stocked up on some on eBay um, and then, uh, once I went down to visit my family in North Carolina, long before COVID, of course, uh, and we went to an old stationery shop that had a stash of them, several, several years old, like several different series of them. Um, so I have a decent backlog waiting to be filled up, but I am thrilled to see that they're available to purchase again. And maybe this time I'll branch out and get a different color. Maybe green? I would love to know then if there's any organizing object, uh, a calendar, a planner, a type of pen, uh, a spreadsheet, a, an app that is uh, super important to you and you seek out uh, as a part of the routine of organizing your life. Um, I would love to hear about what it is, why that particular thing is just right for you and what it means to not be able to have it. Uh, yeah, so that concludes the news for this episode. The website for self-sort is shackismy.name slash self underscore sort pod. Uh, you can email the podcast at self.sort.pod at gmail.com. Uh, social media for self-sort is self.sort underscore pod on Instagram. Self underscore sort underscore pod on Twitter. I'm so sorry about all of these periods and underscores. Every platform has a different rule about which characters you are allowed to use. Something I could talk about on this podcast. We could normalize this. Would it make our world that much better? Is it worth the time? Only future episodes of Self Sort Pod can find out. You can get this podcast via anchor fm slash self dot sort direct through the RSS feed. Um, the link is in the show notes and also is through anchor FM and on Spotify and iTunes, hopefully within a week or so of this recording takes a bit to push the first episode out. Uh, so your patience is appreciated. And coming up next time, our first guest is Dr. Chelsea Gunn, teaching assistant professor in the Department of Information, Culture, and Data Stewardship at the University of Pittsburgh School of Computing and Information. That is uh, where I am finishing my PhD right now. Uh, Chelsea finished hers this past year. Uh, her teaching and research interests include personal archives, archival ethics, web and social media archiving, and digital preservation. Uh, so we'll definitely have a lot to talk about. Chelsea is 
a colleague and a friend of mine, and she is single-handedly responsible for the yearly planner I chose to buy this year. Uh, so we'll definitely be talking about that, um, as well as personal digital archiving, a subject which Chelsea uh, knows quite well, and uh, I frankly love to talk to her about. So uh, the date for that um, will be coming soon, approximately two weeks. But again, it all depends on turnaround time from this episode and when we can get it through to Spotify and iTunes. Thank you so much for your patience. With that, my name is Shaq Hackney, and this has been Self Sort, a podcast about how people organize things. Thank you for making time in your busy schedule to listen in. See you next time.